will now call on our speaker, Brother Ron Abel, to speak on the subject. For a wider door for effectual work is open to me. Brother Abel. My beloved brothers and sisters and young people, tonight's concluding uh, address on Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians will be an attempt to pull some of the threads together. It will be somewhat piecemeal as we continue from our background of the spirit gifts and some of the problems that arose in the question session afterwards in Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. So that for those who are new tonight, the information may not fit a proper context for you, but it arises out of our consideration of the gift of tongue speaking in 1 Corinthians 14. Can we turn to Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2? Problem 1. A number of questions last night hinged on whether or not there was one or two miracles in Acts chapter 2. Whether in fact there was a miracle that rested on the tongue speaker, which enabled him to speak uh, languages unknown to him, or whether there was an unintelligible utterance made by the tongue speaker, and the Holy Spirit wrought a miracle in those who were hearers. Now it was my understanding of this passage that one miracle and one miracle alone was wrought in Acts chapter 2. And that was the God-given capability to the twelve apostles to speak in languages that they may never have made the subject of study. Now can we see whether this is borne out by the narrative again? Verse 4 of Acts 2. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so our initial point last night was that they spoke other tongues. And if they spoke other tongues, that this would in fact infer that they spoke uh, not an unintelligible utterance, which would be uh, one kind of speaking, but that they spoke diverse tongues with other tongues in the plural, which is suggestive in itself that they were engaged in speaking something other than mere babbling or glossolalia. We notice furthermore, as we read through the narrative, that there is uh, tongue speaking, tongue speaking is engaged in, before the multitude arrives. Verse uh, 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And you'll notice tonight that I'm using the Revised Standard Version, as I have on other occasions. But you see that there was the tongue speaking that the apostles commenced, and at the sound of this, the multitude came together. Again, this is suggestive that the miracle rested on the tongue speaker and not on the hearer. They're engaging in tongue speaking, speaking foreign languages, and it's the sound of this that attracts the multitude together. And lastly... Notice the reaction of the hearers, verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Now if in fact two miracles were wrought, one on the speaker and one on the hearer, 
Why do we have these individuals standing up and attributing the phenomenon to drunkenness? If the Holy Spirit was, uh, was bringing a miracle on the, uh, on the hearers, why would they attribute the phenomenon to them being filled with new wine? So our third argument hinges on the response of those who hear the tongue speakers. Some mocking attributed to, to the apostles being drunk on wine. So for those three reasons alone, it seems to me that the narrative teaches there were tongue speakers, the twelve apostles, who spoke foreign languages, foreign dialects, as the word dialectos means. And so if one came from Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, or Libya, he would hear one apostle speaking in the language of the Libyans, another the language of the Egyptians, and so on. And furthermore, the promise was, for John baptized you with water, but before many days you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.5 The promise only related to the apostles. A further question arose. Verse 39 For the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. Now it was suggested that the antecedent to the promise is not the gift of the Holy Spirit, but is the promise of the Messiah up in the context in verse 22, 29, who was in fact the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this would remove the antecedent to promise to uh, quite a distance back in the context of Peter's speech, away from the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you. Now, I believe that the gift referred to in Acts chapter 2 is the promise of verse 39, and that the promise does not relate to the Messiah. Now, there are a number of reasons for this. First of all, verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you see and hear. So it seems to me that the object of reference here is the Holy Spirit power. And this also seems to be the illusion of Acts of the Apostles as we proceed through the narrative. For example, Acts chapter 11. Reading at uh, verse 15. Here Peter is recounting the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 as a divine sanction that the Gentiles had been admitted to the way of salvation. Verse 15 of Acts 11. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And so again you see the connection of the Holy Spirit with the gift. And one last passage, Acts chapter 19. This is a more inferential kind of passage, but I think it makes the same point. Acts chapter 19. When Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper coast and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
And they said, no, we have never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, and so on, the narrative goes on to record the events that happened. But the significant part here is verse 6, And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So it seems to me you have in Acts chapter 19 what Peter alludes to in Acts chapter 11 and what occurred in Acts chapter 10. It was the promised gift of Acts chapter 2, and therefore we must read the immediate antecedent to the promise, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now, brothers and sisters, because there is such an emphasis today on what is said to be the love of Christ, nearly every religionist that we meet on the street will speak something about the love of Christ. As we know, this is understood in a very large number of varied and even contradictory sort of ways. To the one individual, it means being engaged in social work, what he would consider doing good to his neighbor. To another fellow, it means preaching to him the doctrines of the truth. And so there's quite a latitude when we come to this word love and its interpretation and understanding in Scripture. Can we uh, pass a few comments in general? The word love in the Greek language is... Uh, really, uh, there are four different words used by the Greeks for love. Of course, it's agape in 1 Corinthians 14. But the Greeks made finer distinctions with their words than we do sometimes. There was eros, for example, translated love, which was a sexual kind of love. There was philio, a brotherly kind of affection. There was storge, the kind of love that a mother has for her children. And then we come to a word that's almost uniquely biblical, agape, the Greek word translated charity in the authorized version, and love in the Revised Standard Version. Now, this word love that you see in verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1, make love your aim, we may not be sure how this word is used. So can we look at the pedigree of this word in the New Testament, just taking a few passages to see how it's used? For example, in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, we see one use of this word agape, in the New Testament context. The Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures uses the word agape for the Hebrew equivalent about 14 times. Um, also in the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where you have a reference to love in the Old Testament the New Testament translators use this word agape. Verse 43 of Luke 11. Woe to you, Pharisees! For you, agape, the best seats in the synagogues and salutations in the marketplaces. Agape is used here of the regard that a Pharisee had for the best seats in the synagogue. Over to John's Gospel now, and we'll take a look at how it's used in John's Gospel in several passages. Verse 16 of chapter 3. 
for God so agape the world that he gave his only son. The relationship of the uh, regard that Jesus had, that God had for his son and for the world. For the same word is used for his son in verse 35 of the same chapter. The father agapes the son, for so God agapes the world, verse 16. But notice in verse 19, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men agapate darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And in chapter 11, the word is used of Jesus' regard for Lazarus, a very tender affection. John chapter 11, verse 5. Now Jesus agapeed Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now that shows us that there's quite a, a wide spectrum of the use of this word agape in Scripture. It can't always be identified with divine sacrificial love. It's not always used that way in Scripture, as the examples that we've cited indicate. But we have a very good commentary on love, as used by John in his epistle, and I think we'll find that this is the way it's used in 1 Corinthians as well. Can we turn to John's epistle, his first epistle, chapter 5, and just follow through the concept that John brings out of the love of God. John, first epistle, chapter 5, reading at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is a child of God. And everyone who agapes the parent agapes the child. Many of the allusions you can think of, brothers and sisters, to Corinth in that context. By this we know we agape the children of God when we agape God and obey his commandments. For this is the agape of God, that we keep his commandments. So you see, this love of God is something that's very practical. It's not some nebulous concept of a hazy kind of feeling of goodness that you have in your heart. Because as we saw, when we looked at the conscience of an individual, that together perceive the oida, and the soon of the individual, for one character, he can be morbidly introspective in his regard for agape. Another individual, he can be comfortably accommodating in what he can do. So the feelings that we may have about love can vary with our total sense impressions and the whole of our background. But the love of God, the agape of God, this is the agape of God that we keep his commandments. And you notice that it's both lateral and vertical. The love is a relationship with God that an individual has, but it's also lateral. It affects the other children of God Almighty, as John points out. This uh, is a child of God, and everyone who agapes the parent loves the child. And so you recall at Corinth, the apostle said, you have many pedagogi, but you don't have many fathers. Fathers willing to chasten, to guide, and to exercise the discipline on their children that they might grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
So it involves not only our relationship to God, but our relationship to our fellow brethren. Important when we move back into 1 Corinthians 14. Second letter of John, verse 1. To the elder, to the elect, to the elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I agape in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us. Down to the latter part of verse 5. He speaks about that we love one another. Verse 6. And this is the agape, that we follow his commandments. This is the commandment, as you have heard from the beginning, that you follow agape. So, brothers and sisters, the agape of the New Testament, as used in this context by John, is a practical kind of, of, of agape that's related to the keeping of God's commandments. And not only that, it's embraced in the concept of those who know the truth, who abide in the truth, and who live the truth. That body of principles that, for example, are elucidated in the Birmingham Amended Statement of Faith, those basic elements of the gospel message that we believe constitute the power of God unto salvation and the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ that govern our walk in everyday life. The truth, that expression is used of the faith, the doctrine, that corpus of apostolic knowledge that differentiated the believers of the gospel and those who were believers in the paganism of the day. Now this provides a very appropriate setting for 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For the apostle says, verse 1 of chapter 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and a question came on about the uh, use of angels here. Angels, the language that they speak in Scripture, is always the language of the human beings with whom they are communicating. And angels may have a language that uh, is unknown to us that they communicate with each other and with the Almighty, but the secret things uh, are the Lord God Almighty's and the things that are revealed are ours, and we just don't know. It seems to me it's a point of emphasis, like the apostle used in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. If I, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, not that an angel from heaven would preach another gospel, it's a point of emphasis, as I believe we have here. He says, if I don't have agape, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries, the gift of wisdom, and all knowledge, gift of knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains and have not agape, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not agape, I gain nothing. Now, agape is vertical insofar as believers uh, exemplify this characteristic of love when they keep the commandments of God Almighty. You are my friend, says Jesus, if you keep my commandments. And this is what we have in the context in chapter 12. 
Notice, as we pointed out last time, verse 25, that there may be no discord in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so you see, in the context of 1 Corinthians 13, we have virtually a definition of agape. It relates to the care that a brother ought to have for another brother, a concern for his ultimate spiritual welfare. Now, that's important to stress today, brothers and sisters. You know, in the religious world around us in the park, if you argue with some Seventh-day Adventist that shows up in the park, the United Church people think that you're unchristian because you've argued about religion. And religion is not to be argued about, it's to be experienced, so they say. Well, what is better, to uh, watch a man go to perdition or to try and teach him the things of the kingdom that he may live forever? And so, in Corinth, the Apostle Paul had to reprove those Corinthians. He said, drive out that wicked man from amidst you. Very strong language to the fornicator at Corinth, to the man engaging in pornea. But the Apostle Paul was exercising agape. He had care for that ecclesia because he knew that a little leaven would leaven the whole lump. And he was concerned for the welfare of his brothers and sisters. Oh, my little children, he agonized over the Galatians. Who has bewitched you? And he commented in the very loving terms of those who worked with him. Epaphroditus, nigh unto death for the work of the Lord. And so agape, in its manifestation, always, brothers and sisters, has the best interest of the other brothers and sisters at stake. It's not the kind of individual who engages in malicious gossip, because that individual doesn't have at heart the best interest of his fellow brothers and sisters. A man who stands on his liberty in the truth to do what he wants to do, he's made free by the law and doesn't respect the conscience of his weak brother, does not exercise agape. He doesn't have the same care one for another. And so in chapter 14, chapter 13 and on in chapter 14, the apostle is showing that if you're a great altruist, if you give all your goods to feed the poor, if you have knowledge, if you have faith to remove mountains, but you don't have that regard for your fellow brethren, motivated on the basis of a conscience, enlightened in the word, having the best interest of your brethren at stake, then it profits you nothing. And brothers and sisters, what a high standard that is. Just think how conscious we ought to be in everything we do in the truth, that we have the best interest of the truth at heart. And as we saw, a person's conscience can fluctuate a lot depending upon the background reading, for example. We took the example of a young girl. She's interested in what's a saleable commodity in the date market. She's influenced by the kind of uh, novel she has underneath her pillow at night. She's influenced by her peer group at school, what the kids think there. She's influenced by the ecclesial conscience, what kind of standards our ecclesia is prepared to set. And so agape is acting out of the best interest for your fellow brothers and sisters. And as to whether we know absolutely for sure what the best interest of our ecclesia will be, will be proportioned 
proportional to the amount of this word that we have dwelling in our hearts by faith. We can't expect to get out, brothers and sisters, what we don't put into it. And as the apostle says, faith comes by hearing the word. And if we're to exercise that love that uh, God showed in his son and uh, his regard for the world, if we're to keep his commandments, then it's obvious, brothers and sisters, we have to know what the commandments are. And it's a great tragedy when we find people who leave the truth and they've never even read Christendom Astray or never even taken the time to take a look at Elpis Israel. And yet they gravitate off to other religious groups. So our ecclesial conscience will in part dictate the kind of principle that we will act out of when it comes to agape. Can we take a practical point now? And this part of our address is primarily designed for our young people. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. A number of the young people have asked, um, I'd like to be a more uh, useful member of my ecclesia in doing gospel proclamation work, but I just don't feel that I'm capable of doing it. I, um, I'd like to do it, but there's no sense me knocking on a door if I don't have the answers. Do you have any suggestions as to what I could do to uh, be a more effective member of my ecclesia in their gospel proclamation work? Well, I'm going to suggest a project that was used reasonably successfully in the Toronto area. If it's useful to you, then you can go on your way rejoicing. For most of the older members of the Ecclesia, it will be old stuff. 1 Corinthians 15.29 Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Now, if you were in Manitoulin Island, that's the largest freshwater island in the world, up in the Great Lakes system of Ontario, and you decided you'd go with the Christadelphians and knock on doors, it wouldn't be very long until you knocked on a Mormon door. Now, these uh, Mormons in Canada belong to the reorganized group, reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because they rejected the succession through Brigham Young. They held that the church ought to pass from uh, father to son. Anyway, there were certain other theological differences, and they felt they had a duty to go out and preach to the lost ten tribes of the house of Israel. So they went up to the northern part of Canada. They figured this was where the Indians were, and uh, they would go and preach to these Indians up in Canada. And consequently, whenever we do door-to-door work in uh, Manitoulin Island, the biggest church in the whole island is the Mormon church. And sure enough, this passage comes up. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead. Now, in Salt Lake City, Utah, the Mormons have probably the biggest genealogical archive in the world. It would take a direct hit by a hydrogen bomb to disturb their genealogical archive in Salt Lake City, Utah. It's built right into the mountains. Now, the reason for this is that they baptize by proxy, that you find out who your past relatives have been, who they are, and then you're baptized on behalf of them. So you have a vicarious baptism. And where do they go to prove their proposition? 1 Corinthians 15:29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? 
Now, I'll take the position of a young person in Canada and go through the steps that we would suggest one ought to go through in approaching this problem. Well, to begin with, you've never ever heard of this fantastic doctrine that live people can be baptized for the dead. And so you take a look at that text again. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Now, something sounds fishy because there's no other passage in the Bible quite like it. You remember that there is a passage in Peter that is somewhat related, but it doesn't have to do with baptism. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 3, you check your cross-reference, and in verse 18 it says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And then you have a note in your margin that takes you down into uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 and talks about the gospel being preached to those who are dead, verse 6. And that's not a very helpful cross-reference because that gets you into more problems because apparently when Jesus died, his spirit went and preached to spirits in prison. And it says the gospel was preached unto those who were dead. And how can dead people respond to the preaching of the gospel? So you see you have a problem on what was your strong ground, the immortality of the soul. He felt there's one thing you knew, man was mortal, and you could show from Ezekiel that the soul that sinneth it shall die. And here, this fellow has cross-referenced a couple of passages that really put you in trouble. Well, you're suspicious to begin with that any religious group should hang a doctrine on only one verse, a precarious position to occupy. And you take the next step. Maybe there's something in the context that helps me to understand what this passage is all about. And so you proceed then to take a look at the context, and we'll survey the context now. <clears throat> the Apostle points out that Jesus Christ uh, really did rise from the dead, verse 3. In verse 4 he says he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So Old Testament prophecies vindicate this point. And not only that, he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive. They're reliable witnesses, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and uh, to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as one born out of due season. So the apostle is arguing then that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead and he has the empirical verification in these witnesses that he can call up. And then he continues his argument. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, if you recall our first address, brothers and sisters, we went into a rather elaborate background of the uh, philosophical position and the ethics of the Greek heritage that people had at Corinth. How they had a scale going from matter to form and how you had the Epicureans who maximized pleasure as the hedonists do. And you had the Stoics who uh, were ascetic and practiced self-abasement, who argued that the body ought to be subdued and the thing to be concerned about is the spirit or the inner man. And so with this Grecian background, we find it a problem in 1 Corinthians 15 because they're virtually holding Plato's doctrine that the real world is not the world of uh, what we think are realities, the world, real world is the world of forms. 
and we are mere shadows of that form. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, they're denying the literal resurrection of the body and the accent being on the inner man. The gnosis, that with which we reason and think, that with which we uh, perceive our conscience. And this old body doesn't matter. Well, Paul says, if you say there's no resurrection, what about the Lord Jesus Christ? And he continues, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Strong language. And we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who are fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. And you notice here, young people, how that we have a very powerful argument in the context. For the Mormon who says that, well, when you die, your body disintegrates and goes back to the ground, but the soul continues in another world. Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And notice... He uses the expression that they have fallen asleep. They're not awake somewhere else. He says they've fallen asleep. So in our Bible then, in that context, we would underline that section in red. And so the next time the Mormon cited the passage in verse 29, we would quickly look through our background and see neatly underlined in red, have fallen asleep in Christ. And this would indicate to us that if they've fallen asleep, they're not awake somewhere else. And if, in fact, the apostle says, if the dead rise not, then those who are sleeping have perished, then this is an insurmountable problem for Mr. Mormon because he teaches that the soul can get along quite well without the body. Yet Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then those who have fallen asleep have perished. And so you see, in the context of this passage, you have an irrefutable proposition that one cannot survive apart from a body resurrection. And that if the dead are not raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now that's point number two for Mr. Mormon. So we see that the argument here is really about the resurrection of Christ. We find we have a section in parentheses beginning at verse 20 down to the end of verse 28. But the argument really continues now at verse 29. Otherwise... What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? So we look at several translations. We're not helped too much by the translations. Then we take the Greek text out. And we notice, by reference to, say, Nestle's Greek text, or the emphatic diaglot. Nestle's is used quite a lot in Ontario. It has the Greek text on the one side, with the interlinear English at the bottom and the authorized version on the other side. And we find this out about the Greek text. We find out, for example, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead, singular, if the dead, plural, are not raised? Now that's interesting because Jesus alluded, or Paul alluded, to a dead uh, Christ back in the context. If Christ is not raised, 
your faith is vain. Now, it would make sense then, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead anointed one? If the believers are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Does this fit the context? Well, we continue to read down through 1 Corinthians 15. Why, says the apostle, am I in peril every hour? I protest, brethren, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. And you recall, brothers and sisters, from our study early on in the week, the apostle said this when he was in Asia, we were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Why, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, 2 Corinthians 1.8. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, reading at uh, verse 30, he says, uh, I die every day. His daily life was a sacrificial outpouring before God Almighty. And what do I gain, says the apostle? If humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Now we're aware of this illusion. Fought with beasts at Ephesus. That takes us back to the apostle's illusions when he referred to what he had to suffer in chapter 4 of Corinthians. Remember, brethren, how he said that God has exhibited us, apostles, last of all like men sentenced to death. Because after the Isthmian games, they took the worst criminals and they led them in naked and chained and they prayed them before all those multitudes at the Isthmian games. And after being paraded, they were made to fight like gladiators. They were sewed in animal skins and made to fight with wild beasts. And so Paul says we've been made a spectacle to the world. So in chapter 15 he says, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now we pick up that illusion. Who was it that said, you know, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? That's Mr. Epicurean, sitting back saying, well, how can I best get on in life? The best way I can get on is to maximize my pleasure. And whatever furthers my self-interest, that will I do. And so Paul says, well, if the dead are not raised, then you might just as well be like an Epicurean. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived, Corinthians, he says. You've been keeping the wrong kind of company. Bad company ruins good morals. Come to your right mind and sin no more. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. The apostle then commences to uh, elaborate his argument. How are the dead raised up, he says, some man will say. And he goes on to say, you don't sow uh, the grain that shall be, and that which you sow has to die first, and then it produces the grain. And what you sow is not the body which is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. God gives it a body, he says, as it is chosen. So he says there's a difference between the piece of grain that you sow, the grain seed, and the grain that it produces. Different, but there's an identity. It's still the same kernel of grain. It's still wheat or barley or oats. It's different, but it is different, but it has an identity. And so he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Well, the implication for our young person who's uh, 
uh, gone home after knocking on a door, after a Mormon has asked them what it means to be baptized on behalf of the dead, has been this. A. What do we find in the context that would help to elucidate this passage? In other words, what's the argument that's being portrayed here in 1 Corinthians 15? Now, in learning through school, learning theory at school, it's almost axiomatic that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And that's the Gestalt theory of learning. That the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Therefore, young people get the argument of the passage, get the theme of the passage, and then the pieces will fit. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And then we can come down and take the apostle's argument apart. First of all, he argues for the resurrection of Christ. He's got the empirical evidence that Christ rose from the dead. Next, he says, well, if Christ rose from the dead, how do you rule out a priori that dead people can rise? He then proceeds to argue that, well, if the dead don't rise, then those who have fallen asleep, your loved ones, have perished. He finally says, and what shall they do, those who are baptized, if they're baptized on behalf of a dead Messiah? What's it going to profit them? What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead, the believers, rise not at all. And then he goes on to say that he has a sacrificial regard for the life that he has in Christ Jesus. He says, what advantage is it me if I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead rise not at all, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now, in that kind of a context, young people, you see how we can pick up the argument of the epistle. And however difficult that passage may be, isolated, or maybe when tied in with a passage like Peter, we've got the thread of the narrative. And for the Mormon that's going to enforce upon us that this means proxy baptism, we can show that the apostle is not referring to proxy baptism. In fact, in our margin then of our Bible, we can set out a few passages. It is appointed unto men once to die, after this the judgment. Hebrews chapter 9, for example. We can point out in the margin of our Bible the unconsciousness of the death state as taught by the apostle elsewhere. In our margin, we can point out the clues from the context that dead people cannot be alive somewhere else because the apostle says if there's no resurrection, then they perish. And if they get along quite well somewhere else without their body, then they cannot be said to have perished. And so we have another clue in our context that helps us to explain this passage. Now, in the Ontario area, most of the young people use a small Bible like this one in their preaching work. It has the advantage of being strong, of being small. Uh, sometimes it's a bit uh, overwhelming when the Christadelphian comes in with a giant Bible all marked up with uh, colored inks and colored pens and so on. It's a little bit overwhelming for some of your contacts and some of your door-knocking work, so we prefer to use a rather unostentatious sort of a Bible, a smaller one, but nevertheless it has all the markings. Now once the young people have been to a few doors, they begin to see the pattern, the kind of questions people ask. For example, the old chestnuts, like the thief on the cross. Verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise, means that when you die you go to paradise. Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus, another one. Well, the young person will go home. He first of all goes with a more experienced worker. He sees what the pattern is and he goes home. 
and he marks up the church passages as well as his own. And so Luke chapter 23, the uh, thief on the cross, is marked in his Bible in blue. And so just leafing through uh, Luke's gospel, he can see, for example, that it's marked in blue. Now that's an advantage. First of all, it may take you a couple of minutes to find the precise verse. With a small blue marking, you know that blue is always the passage used by the church. So every time you see blue, church passage. Now all the points that you're going to stress in the context to explain that passage are underlined in red. And again, in the fast ebb of uh, life as it is today, you may only have two minutes to make your point. And by the time you hunt through Luke trying to figure out where uh, you know, thief on the cross is and rich man Lazarus, the discussion has changed, people are on to something else. So again, you have to know your Bible. And one of the big helps is to use a simple system. And so we use a two-color system, red and blue. And it certainly doesn't befog one with a, you know, a more complex system. Church passages in blue are passages in red. And so when we come to the Sabbath, for example, where the Seventh-day Adventist is going to make a distinction between the moral and ceremonial law, then we have his passages marked in blue and the appropriate responses in red, with the passages, again, in the margin of our Bible. And this is a very useful crutch for our young people. Now, we should note something about the Apostle Paul. In his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 16, we have an insight in the kind, into the kind of man the Apostle Paul was. Verse 15. Now, brethren, you know, that's of chapter 16, that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you to be subject to such men and to every fellow worker and laborer. And notice how he's in debt, verse 18. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. Now this is the same man, brothers and sisters, who in verse 8 said, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now you think of the situation at Corinth, brothers and sisters, as we uh, review the situation there. The apostle was over here in Ephesus, and he's writing to the Ecclesia at Corinth. And he sends them this uh, handwritten manuscript, signed with his own name. But we'll move back into the context of our early remarks to determine the adversaries that the apostle had at Corinth. Well, he had a divided house at Corinth for his preaching work. He had those who said, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. And so he didn't even have a unit in his Ecclesia to go out and engage in his preaching work. He had a factious house. Not only that, he had those who said, the Apostle Paul, he doesn't speak anything that's very wise. We want something that's more sophisticated, something more mysterious, like we have in our Grecian uh, civilization. And so the Apostles had Jews who demanded a sign from heaven, some great prodigious sign. Greeks, to whom the preaching of the cross was folly. They developed their own theory of ethics. The Ecclesia wanted someone who had some oratorical ability, someone who was a real rhetorician, 
someone who could argue and debate well, like Apollos. And so you see, the Apostle Paul has quite a checkered household to work with at Corinth. But he pointed out to these Corinthians that be careful how you're building in this ecclesia, Corinthians, because every man's work is going to be tried by fire of what sort it is. And if you've been building hay, wood, uh, and stubble for your building, then the work will be devoured by the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only if you're building uh, gold, silver, and stones that your work will survive. So he admonishes this factious ecclesia that they were the naos, the inner sanctuary of the living God, and that they were engaged in a great building work, and Paul was the commissioned architect, and they were building the oikos of the living God. And so he's encouraging them that this fellowship they've been called to is a fellowship that's a call by the Lord God himself. And therefore you are God's temple. Your naos is the dwelling place of the living God. And whoever, he says, defiles or destroys that naos that you have, him God will destroy. And then he proceeds to his next problem. He says, brethren, he says, I'm a steward of the mysteries. I am Messiah's deputy in the Ecclesia. He said, yes, he says, I'm like a theater. He says, we're exposed to angels and to men. He says, we're as the refuse and the offscouring of the world. He says, we're just like that criminal that they fed up for a whole year at Corinth and then burned him alive sacrificially. He said, I'm just like that, like the offscouring of the world. And this is the Ecclesia that he's trying to mold into an effective preaching community. A wide open door, he says. And these are the problems the Apostle Paul has to face. And he had practical problems. Men who were destined to judge the world were taking their fellow brothers and sisters to the heathen law court. Pornia, gross immorality at Corinth. Drive out that wicked person, the Apostle Paul had to say to them. And he emphasized the principles of purity and consecration in the truth. And then he had the weak brother and he had the strong brother. He had the weak brother who observed this strong brother standing on his liberty and reclining at the temple, sitting down to a feast before my lord Serapis, the pagan god, with impunity. An idol has no real existence, says the strong brother. Why can't I sit down and eat meats offered to an idol? I can show my impunity to the idol. The weak brother sees the strong brother exercising his liberty. He may be inclined to do the same thing, says the Apostle Paul, and your liberty becomes a source of stumbling to him. So he has those who stand on kenosis. They have knowledge. The strong brother. Then there was the weak brother whose conscience was being defiled by the liberty exercised by the strong brother. This is a real ecclesia the apostle has to work with. You begin to get a feel, brothers and sisters, for the problems that this man, the apostle Paul, had to face at Corinth. The apostle Paul came to deal with idolatry and for the man who exercised his liberty to eat the meat uh, offered... Uh, in the shambles, in the marketplace, but was dedicated to a god. 
to a pagan god. And the Apostle Paul emphasizes, by reference to Israel's history and their wanderings in the wilderness, that they don't fall into idolatry. And he said, These things are examples for you, brethren at Corinth, lest you fall after the same manner of unbelief. They're written for your learning and for your admonition. Now, in this ecclesia that had an abundance of spirit gifts, God had poured out his spirit power upon them so that Paul said they didn't lack in any spiritual gift. God gave them apostles. He gave them teachers. He gave them prophets, workers of miracles. And what was happening? Well, the ecclesia was coming to the breaking of bread service. They weren't even tearing for one another to wait to start. They had turned the memorial service into a drunken feast. Some were hungry. The low social class slave members of the Ecclesia would arrive late from their day's work. And then there was the sophisticated, supercilious strong brother who with his uh, very uh, lucrative background would sit down to a great feast. So we had this division existing at Corinth. And when they came to exercise their spirit gifts, what did the tongue speakers do? They all stood up and babbled away together. The apostle said, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. He then proceeded to deal with those brethren who, for example, when it came to revelation, would stand up and assert their right to give a revelation when Brother X was sitting by. He says, brethren, agape vaunteth not itself. Agape is not puffed up. Agape is kind, he says. Agape suffereth long. Now he says, I, I don't want to quench the spirit. And he says, covet to prophesy. But I show unto you a more excellent way. And he strives to educate this ecclesia in the things of the spirit. That a man who regards himself as an eye or a foot in the ecclesia should not despise another member of the organic body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to the Apostle Paul back at Ephesus. Now, brethren, maybe you think you have problems in your ecclesia when it comes to gospel publicity work. Maybe you think that the wide open doors are only in the countries of Guyana, Colombia, Malawi, Indonesia. But, brothers and sisters, we have great reason for strength and encouragement from the example of the Apostle Paul. How we must agonize with that man who was like a runner running the race. A man who said, I pommel my body and bring it into submission, lest at any time when I herald the games, I myself should be a castaway. How we agonize with the Apostle Paul when false brethren who crept in secretly to spy out his liberty cut away his authority and undermine his influence in that ecclesia. Now, if you think you have problems wherever you are, brothers and sisters, think of the problems that our brother Paul had in the first century. And think of how that man labored on and pressed on in his work, becoming all things to all men. I have become all things to all men, says the apostle, that I might by all means save some. A pretty disproportionate work. He's got to become all things to all men that he might only save some. A man who uh, 
wasn't going to stand on his individual personal liberty. And man who didn't exercise his own rights in the ecclesia. And man who labored not with his own hands only to provide for his needs. He even provided for men who worked with him and wasn't even chargeable to this ecclesia. Although it was written, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads the corn. Now that's the kind of men, brothers and sisters, that we need today. We need the Epaphroditus's that are well nigh unto death for the work of the Lord. We need men like Timothy. All men seek their own, says the Apostle Paul, but not Timothy. He sought the things of others. We need uh, people like uh, Prisca and Aquila ready to, to lay down their necks, says the Apostle Paul, for the work of the Lord. And as we see the doors opening in the far-off fields, we remember that in the first century the Apostle Paul followed the bloodstream, as it were, of the Roman Empire. John Thomas and Robert Roberts followed, as it were, the bloodstream of the British Empire. And now the doors open in other parts of the world. The gates are swinging open in South America, for example, and Latin America. Where are the young people that are prepared to say, Here I am, Lord, send me. But we need men, brothers and sisters, who are skilled in the use of this book. Men who, if they're going to feed those who are weak, have to drink deep at the well of life themselves. And so we need more young apostles, brothers and sisters. We need more training programs in our ecclesias to build the young men who are able to show in that publicly by the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And as you who are elders in the ecclesia, setting the example of dedication and devotion like the Apostle Paul. As fathers and not as pedagogi to the ecclesia, elders exercising a loving care over the growth of the brothers and sisters. Not brethren looking forward to a period when they can retire from the truth, but brethren who regard that ecclesia as God's divine training ground. Problems and factions, yes, says the apostle, but that's how we can determine who are genuine. And so I leave with you the words of the Apostle Paul as we conclude our study at Corinth. I'd like you to listen to these words, brothers and sisters, as I read them to you. The Apostle says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be watchful, stand firm in your faith, be courageous, and be strong. And so we pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding to lead a life worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you all be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness 
and has transferred us for the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And in view of the large number here tonight, and I hope the large number of questions, we'd like you to keep your questions short as possible, and our speaker will give a brief answer so that we can get through as many questions as possible. Now, who's got the first one? Chairman, I wonder if Brother Abel could please tell us to what extent has the Word taken the place of the Holy Spirit? I don't know, Brother Chairman, if there's a short answer to this question. This is a very, very good question. To what extent has the Word taken the place of the Holy Spirit? So often in our conversation with those who claim present-day possession of the Holy Spirit, they think we're shortchanging them because we emphasize the Word. Now, I'd like to point out, first of all, a simple test. In John's Gospel, um, we'll take a look at verse... Uh, 12 of chapter 16. The purpose of the Holy Spirit. John 16, verse 12. I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now just flip over in your Bible to uh, John chapter 14, remembering what we've read in chapter 16. Verse 26. But the Counselor, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now I have yet to find a latter-day claimant to the Holy Spirit power who hasn't been stuck to remember what had been taught to him. And I've had numerous examples of this taking place. People who claim to have the Spirit exactly like they had it in the first century and who feel you're taking away part of the Bible to say that the Spirit gift ceased at the end of the first century are the very persons who, A, are not led into all truth, they usually have erroneous views about the sacrifice of Christ, teaching substitution, for example, or his pre-existence, and certainly it cannot be said that uh, they have a ready recollection of all the things that have been taught them. So there are two passages to keep in mind when approaching the problem of showing how the Word is in fact today the yardstick by which we work. Now, Jesus made a number of statements about the Word. For example, in uh, John's Gospel, we'll take a look at a few of these passages. John chapter 6, verse 63. And brothers and sisters, I'm going to run through, without too much by way of comment, a number of these passages that are useful to get the full impact of what God's Almighty Word can do for us. Verse 63. It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I speak unto you, 
are spirit and life. Verse 68, they're identified with the words of eternal life. So the word is said by Jesus to be spirit and life. In fact, it's connected with eternal life. Now, the word is what will judgment in the last day, for example. In John chapter 12, Jesus points this out. The word that Jesus spoke will be the judge at the last day. John 12, 48, passage well known to us. He who rejects me does not receive my sayings, has a judge, the word that I have spoken will be his judge on the last day. Over in John chapter 15, it's the agency by which a man is cleansed. It can cleanse a man. And usually, this is attributed to the Holy Spirit by latter-day claimants. Verse 3, You are already made clean by the word which I have spoken to you. You might want to cross-reference that to Psalm 119. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way, says the writer, by giving heed thereto according to the word, which, the psalmist also said, has been magnified even above his great name. Verse 22, it's the basis of accountability. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. So, it's the basis of accountability before God. In other words, it's not baptism that makes our young people liable to a resurrection. It's our responsibility based upon our perception of the divine purpose. As Jesus points out, if I had not come and spoken to them, then they would not have sinned. Now they have no more cloak for their sins, says Jesus. John chapter 17, verse 17. It's the uh, agency by which Jesus sanctifies people to obtain the oneness that he refers to in John 17. We know these passages very well. He says, I have given them thy word, verse 14. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Believers are sanctified in the truth. Believe, for example, that Jesus came to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, that Abraham should be the heir of the world. It's the truth, the embodying corpus of knowledge, the truth, that a believer is sanctified in. Thy word is truth, says Jesus. Now, there are a few of the passages in John's Gospel. There are many more, for example, in the epistles. We'll just pick them out sporadically as we leave through. There is a passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which we won't bother reading because all the Christadelphians know that one anyway. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Can we turn to Peter's epistle? Chapter 2 of his first epistle. That passage says that the word is able to make a man complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Timothy passage. The Peter passage, chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 2. Like newborn babes, desire or long for the sincere milk of the word, 
that ye may grow up to salvation. So you see that the word is something to be desired because by means of the word, one grows up to salvation. It's the agency of growth in the truth. James chapter 1 tells us, for example, that the word saves our souls. James chapter 1, verse 21. He points out, Therefore put away all filthiness and rank growth of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. So what does the word do? The word can save your soul. That it's implanted. And that in a biblical context means to be written upon the tables of the heart and to be kept as frontlets before the eyes. Therefore, it's the implanted word that is able to save one's soul. Uh, Paul, writing to the Ephesian brethren, for example, in chapter 5 of his epistle to the Ephesians, verse 26, speaks about the washing of water by the word. Ephesians 5, verse 26, speaking of the ecclesia, that he might sanctify her, an allusion to John 17. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the ecclesia to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle says that the, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. So the word is a sword. A passion Thessalonians we could look up, but we'll leave now, speaks of the word able to work effectually in those who believe. Now that's quite a formidable passage for this passage, brothers and sisters. For those who place much stress on the Holy Spirit, look what the Word is able to do. It's spirit and life. It has the capability within it of eternal life. It's going to be the judge of all men in the last day. The Word that I've spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. It's able to cleanse a man. Cleanse a man. Now are you clean by the Word, says Jesus. It's the basis of our accountability. It's the agency of sanctification by which we obtain oneness with the Father and His Son. That the Word of God is able to make a man complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What's left for the Holy Spirit to do in that context? It's the means of growth. Peter says, Desire the sincere milk of the Word that ye may grow thereby. James says that the implanted Word saves our souls. It's able to be the the agency of salvation if it works by faith. And this passage refers to the ecclesia being washed by the water of the word. And finally, says Paul in Ephesians, is part of the equipment of the saint, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And brothers and sisters, that's only scratching the number of passages that one could turn up that refer to the power and the agency of the word of God.